and welcome to episode 118 of Herpetological Highlights, the podcast all about reptile and amphibian scientific happenings. My name's Tom Major and co-hosting with me as ever is Ben Marshall. And in episode 118, we've got a little bit of frog action, some funny little frogs doing some silly things. And we've also got a new species of frog coming up at the back end of the episode, which also has kind of a bit of a comical bent. So um, if you like sort of chuckling at the ways of small frogs, then this is probably the episode for you. How's it going, Ben? It's good. It's good. I think comical frogs is the perfect way of describing this duo of papers. I mean, they are tiny and hilarious. Yeah, they are. They're a little bit silly. But before we talk about frogs, a few people have been asking for updates about the Escalapian snake project that I'm Ah, currently embarked upon. My very busy life tracking snakes with my amazing field team. And yeah, it's going very well. We've implanted 11 snakes with radio transmitters this year. We're actively tracking nine of them. Two, unfortunately, have disappeared for unknown reasons. Really frustrating, actually. Last year, we had a bunch of them disappear for different reasons, but we always found them. We always like, you know, one got hit by a car, but we still managed to track it. The transmitter wasn't damaged. Various ones got eaten by various things. But we always managed to find the transmitter. But this year, two of them, one male and one female, Lucy and Smallie Biggs, both missing in action. They might still turn up, though. They might still turn up. Yeah, Smallie's only been missing for few days but the area they inhabit is so small that you would expect to find them with relative ease yeah yeah unless there's been a transmitter issue itself that's what i'm kind of thinking but anyway you know yeah the likelihood is that either the snakes that are disappeared have been hit by a car and the transmitter's been destroyed or they've been taken by an aerial predator so far away that we won't find them or transmitter failure as you said yeah it kind of like seems quite likely, you know, radio transmitters aren't perfect. The build quality in some of these I wasn't that impressed with. There was like little bits needed super gluing and stuff before they went in the snakes, which is yeah. never ideal. It's pretty variable. And you think you're putting something into a wiggly snake body that bends at all sorts of angles and clambers around in the case of your Escalapians. It's, yeah, it's going to be under sort of pressure, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so yeah, it could have been that or yeah, transmitter failure or like the other option is that maybe some larger predator ate the snake, like a badger, for example, and crunched up the transmitter and did damage to it, stopping it working. And it might not even need to be that much damage, you know, because they have the external um, antennas, these transmitters, right? Yeah, so potentially you've got that bit broken off and it's just destroyed the range paired with it being, you know, underground a, a meter or so. And uh, you're going to have such a tiny range, you're never going to detect it from up top with your fancy uh, radio receivers. Exactly, yeah. And it's kind of weird. Both snakes that disappeared disappeared from the same row of houses. But the people who live in the houses are not suspects. They're chillers. So, I'm, yeah. <laughs> they have all told us, though, that at night their gardens get raided by badgers. Everyone's telling us they're... Oh, um, so it could be badger-related. Yeah, their food waste bins get strewn all over the place because yeah. badgers are coming in at night. And, you know, there's loads of badger sets in the fields behind. So I think, yeah, you know, it could be a badger. But without finding the snake and finding the transmitter, it's frustratingly a mystery. But that's kind of the sort of negative side of the project those are the things that aren't going well but actually actively tracking nine snakes right now that's going fantastically well yeah we've got four females um some of which are hopefully going to be gravid so i'm expecting in the next couple of weeks to see potentially egg laying movements which will be really exciting so 
Yeah. Have you managed to ID nest sites previously? A couple of nest sites, yes. There's a big pile in the... Because part of the range of the snakes is the Welsh Mountain Zoo, where the original escape stemmed from. And there's a massive dung pile there where they collect all the like old hay and straw and poo from all the animal exhibits. Right. And the snakes definitely lay eggs in there. And we've also had a couple of instances of snakes laying eggs in people's garden compost heaps. Ah, uh, so really compost and that warmth is is seeming like prime nest location for these guys yeah absolutely absolutely makes sense yeah. yeah totally yeah it's kind of exactly what a lot of sort of temperate species do is try and find rotting vegetation i always wonder like before humans came along and started composting what were these massive piles of vegetation that snakes were finding i guess maybe it would have to be like some kind of windfall of trees or maybe some like for flood sure you know yeah. a f- flood in like a riparian zone maybe a lot of like collected material Definitely. after high water recedes yeah i mean thing. you're talking about an environment that was far less cleaned up you know you've got vast vastly more trees and vegetation in areas you're not going to have this yeah stuff stripped from the stripped from the landscape in the same sort of way you're going to have a better diversity of riparian areas you know the beavers will still be about producing sort of areas of flooded areas where there's build-up of material and things you know there's a lot could be a lot more going on isn't there yeah totally yeah that's that's a very good very good point we do have a heavily modified and i mean you know and less heavily grazed too so you're going to have a sort of increased vegetational just stuff about aren't you rather than grassland yeah, yeah. But yeah, but I'd be remiss if I mentioned my field work without mentioning Lauren Masterstein, who works for me. I've had COVID for a week, so she tracked 10 snakes by herself for a week, which is no mean feat. So. Right, yeah. I, I, yeah. Big up. <laughs> Can definitely Oslo. back that claim up. <laughs> yeah, you're insane. <laughs> yeah, I'm back out of the field now, though, which is great. Uh, but COVID was, yeah, that's... It was not fun. So let's get on to the paper, shall we? Should we talk about these little miniature frogs? Yeah. Yeah, these uh, pumpkin toadlets is really going to be the uh, target for this paper. Yeah, so this paper is by Esna Pereira, Blackburn Singh, Stanley Maurer, Confetti and Pi 2022. Semicircular canal size constrains vestibular function in miniaturized frogs. Published in Science Advances. As it always is meant to do. Science is constantly advancing. Yeah, well. We had this conversation last time. Yeah, we did. So (laughs) this paper about frogs there's a hilarious video which was also sent to us so one of our patrons paul duran so thanks for sharing that with us we were already onto this paper but it's cool that this is capturing minds and eyes yes people have to look that up yes we'll put it in the links yeah has to happen has to happen so in the title of this paper they mention well there's a bunch of complicated words in the title as you might expect but one of the things they mention is the vertebrate vestibular system the what? And that is a network of fluid-filled chambers and canals within the bony labyrinth of the inner ear. So this is the sort of chambers in your ear which contain liquid. It's a spirit the, level. It's a biological spirit level, right? That's it, pretty much, yeah. yeah. And when the liquid sloshes around, it touches little hairs, and that is responsible for your sense of balance and your spatial orientation. So if you turn your head sideways, you just kind of know you're sideways, you know, and that's because of your ears. <laughs> Yeah. And um, yeah, so there's this tiny group of frogs. They are in the genus Brachycephalus, which means short-headed. 
and they live beneath leaf litter in Brazil's tropical Atlantic forest. And they're tiny, right? They're super, super small. Like, this is miniaturization at its most miniaturized in the vertebrate world. They're like, one, what, 12, 15 millimeters long? So one and a half centimeters long in some cases, these frogs? I think the sort of miniaturized small body frogs, or at least what they classify them as less than 24 millimeters. Yeah, so... <laughs> small, small. That is a tiny frog. Yeah, and... Accordingly, being so tiny, they eat tiny insects. That's their job. They live in the leaf litter and they eat all the tiny little bugs that fly around. It's a simple life, but it's a noble life. Yeah, they're not the most noblest looking of creatures, I must I must admit. Like, what did you refer to them as? Snub-faced? Uh, short-headed. Short-headed. I mean, it is right. It does sort of... They lack a lot of the definition that you would see in frogs that were larger. Like, they're almost pill-shaped, some of them. Yeah. There's very little going on. <laughs> We've had this conversation before where, like, there becomes a point where you're so small that basic features can't really fit on you, and that is yeah. kind of as small as animals can get. And, yeah, they don't have, like, <laughs> the, the sort of well-defined face that you'd expect from a frog. It all just looks like it's a bit squashed on there. Right, and that's sort of the running theme through this paper is that there are aspects of biology that don't scale very well, if at all. And when you get very small, you just you just run into limitations. It's the same as if you get very big. You're going to run into different limitations, but there are just aspects that you can't argue with. <laughs> you can't just make a bigger version of because there are fundamentals. I mean, in this case, we're pretty much looking at things that are connected to, I guess, fluid dynamics, basically. Restrictions of fluid dynamics for the inner ear, that liquid and how it moves and, and the area it's moving around in. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is it. This is it. And that is the crux of this paper. So the reason that this was ever sort of the focus of any attention is that, as we mentioned, there is a funny video of this. And these brachycephalus frogs, they jump. They can jump. They don't really like to jump. And you'll see why. But they can be made <laughs> to jump. If you put one on the floor and then introduce your little pokey finger near it, it will give it a go and it'll jump. Okay, so if you imagine a normal frog's jump, it jumps and like obviously there's this whole like phase where the legs are extending out the frog's like reaching forward it's flying gracefully through the air and then at some point before the frog lands it kind of brings its legs back up instead of being stretched out yeah, and places them in... its front legs ready to cushion that landing critically exactly exactly and so you know i mean the same goes for most animals that jump they sort of make preparations to land but these little tiny frogs make absolutely no preparation whatsoever. They jump, and when they jump, they just kind of stay stretched out. So their back legs are pointing backwards and their front legs are just kind of hanging there. Yeah. And then they just fly through the air. And when it comes time to land, they don't react in any way. They just kind of bounce on the floor, fully outstretched. And it seems to be that hitting the floor is what makes them react. bring their legs back in. Yeah. So they basically just ping off, fly out, and then doing on the floor and then eventually gather themselves back up. And the reason that they do this, the reason that they don't make any sort of preparations to land is because, as we've been talking about, these inner ear canals, the vestibular system, is so small in these frogs that once they start flying through the air, 
the canals in their ears aren't big enough to be able to relay information about what is happening to their bodies. They're literally, their brain is receiving no signal about which orientation they're in, the fact that they're accelerating forward. They just become a bit overwhelmed by it all. And so they can't react. They can't react to what's happening. So they just boing on the floor and then gather themselves up and keep going. It is. They sort of look like... They almost sort of become paralysed or sort of petrified midair <laughs> with this just perfectly frozen, rigid-looking uh, frog posture. It is a sight to behold. It is truly a sight to behold. Yeah, and it's funny because obviously like this tiny inner ear labyrinth, because it's so small, jumping, they can't get signals about where they're going. But even if they walk quickly, if they walk quickly, they can't work out right, their yeah, acceleration. Right, sort of overloads... <laughs> their, their tiny, tiny inner ears. So if they were to walk too fast, they'd lose track of how fast they were going and where they were going, and they're just they wouldn't be able to continue. So to combat that, they only ever walk very slowly, steadily. Yeah, controlled, purposeful movements from yeah the tiniest of frogs. But the thing is, these frogs, obviously, you know, they're they're a variety of species and they're making a go of it on the forest floor. They've probably been doing the same thing for millions of years. So it's actually okay for them to crawl slowly and not really jump, only jump in a very last resort. And the reason that it's all right for them to move slow and barely jump is because they have other ways of surviving that aren't escaping via jumping, right? So for frogs, jumping is not only a means to get around, but also a big anti-predator thing. If you can hop far and fast in one fell swoop, you're away from the predator that's attacking you, hopefully. But these frogs don't really rely on that as a strategy that much. Yeah, there's a sort of assumption is they're not relying upon it because it seems unbelievably inefficient. And if you're partially immobilised when you land, you're reducing your chances for a secondary jump if the first one didn't make it. And we haven't mentioned that as they jump, it's not even a very good jump in most regards. Like, they start sort of twisting left and right as well as sort of doing a backflip, basically, as as they jump. They were suggesting in the paper that that might partially be due to their tiny rear legs, because they're so small, they have fewer digits than other frogs. <laughs> but they're sort of saying, mm, maybe it's not that, because they don't slip that much when they're jumping. So it's, it does look like it's a balance thing. But you do have these multiple sort of limitations from being so small that making the jumps exceptionally clumsy. <laughs> yeah. So clumsy yeah. that there's no way you can look at them and be like, oh yeah, that's a great way of getting away from a predator. Because it's just, yeah, it's, you know, it's like a tiddlywink. It's just, it goes anywhere. It's, it, it doesn't seem, unless the randomness yeah. plays into them. Like, oh my God, the predator is bamboozled by well, the they do sheer talk madness of this frog. Yeah, they do talk about that a bit in the paper. Like yeah. maybe it's possible that their weird jumping strategy means that when they land, they're not recognised as a frog by predators. But that seems quite tenuous and unlikely. Well, and also they're saying that they recover very quickly. Like if they were to jump, turn into a less frog-like shape with all their limbs extended to look like a leaf, like they say in the paper, you'd expect them to just to sit there and be done. And you would expect they? them all to show cryptic coloration. Yeah. Because, I mean, a, a bright orange, these pumpkin toadlets, I mean, they're called pumpkin toadlets for a reason because they are, you know, it can be vivid, vivid orange. And high contrast as well. Super high contrast, you know, very much, oh, right, aposematism. Warning colours, yeah. Yeah, you wouldn't want to mix that up with a behaviour that leaves you vulnerable and sort of would presumably rely on crypsis as, as to 
look more leaf-like after that when you're you know it's not like death feigning unless it yeah. is but it's oh it's it's weird it would be a weird way to rationalize it i feel yeah but that's what they say in this paper basically it's okay for them to be slow it's okay for them to do these weird jumps because it's not a strategy that they're probably relying on right like you said many of them are brightly colored to warn of toxicity and they are in fact toxic in many cases or they are really camouflaged, so they just straight up hide. And others even have osteoderms, these bony plates, underneath the skin as a defense. I mean, you'd have to be pretty small to be concerned about the bony plates of a frog this size, but maybe there are <laughs> predators which that is relevant to. Yeah, I mean, I doubt there's a predator coming along eating them like, you know, chips. No, no. But um, yeah, it's basically the authors think because there is this size constraint with the uh, inner ear canals, they th- expect that all frogs below a certain size probably have this awkward jump strategy and yeah. it isn't unique to this group. There was an interesting point that they were suggesting that um, this sort of clumsy jumping is an ancestral... Well, it appears in earlier diverging groups of living frogs. But I think they're sort of suggesting that it's not an ancestral state for these little toadlets. Because you've got very closely related ones that can jump just fine, but they're just a bigger frog. So it does appear to be something that has come about because of the miniaturization, as opposed to something that they never sort of developed a better ability to jump with balance, if you see what I mean. Like their ancestors could jump well, but then as they got smaller, this limitation sort of came about because of that miniaturization, as opposed to something that was always there something's got to go yeah we always talk about sort of compromises when it comes to selection pressures and stuff and here it seems to be that (laughs) jumping in an elegant balanced fashion is simply not required nope you know and they're living in the forest floor as well i imagine a lot of their lives they probably just carry on completely undisturbed just crawling slowly through the leaf litter eating microscopic bugs yeah yeah I don't know what eats these little toadlets. I would imagine centipedes and things along those lines would, would yeah, take a toadlet, no problem. Yeah, birds yeah. too, yeah, yeah. I can imagine the Brazilian version of a blackbird rummaging through the leaf yes. looking for these guys. Yeah, you ground-dwelling, rummaging birds take the a little toadlet. Mm-mm, delicious. And they do like little gummy bears or something. They do, they are very cool. Brachycephalus tiny little frogs um and yeah we'll put the video link in the show notes it's quite funny they just sort of awkwardly flop onto the floor and also the authors of the paper put some very funny music behind it to sort of make it a bit more dramatic (laughs) i think a lot of amphibian and reptile behavior can be improved with sort of sarcastic music (laughs) it's pretty amazing it is pretty amazing it's well worth it so um should we move on to our species of the bye week yeah, yeah, I think it's just a, yeah, that was a fun paper that basically looked at, you know, there's a lot more detail there that we didn't touch on in terms of the mechanics of these little frogs' inner ears, but uh, I think surface level, it's, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, from one species of frog which is kind of comical for various reasons, to another species of frog, which I find to be quite comical. This is our species of the bye week, and our species of the bye week this week is in a paper by Chavez, Thompson, Sanchez, Chavez, Arabesplata, 
and Katanazi 2022, a needle in a haystack, integrative taxonomy reveals the existence of a new small species of saurial frog from the vast lower Putumoyo Basin, Peru, published in Evolutionary Systematics. Yeah, 2022, nice, fresh, new species and all. Yeah, so um, this little frog, where are we? Peru. Mm-hmm. Lovely, lovely. Yeah, just a bit south of Colombia. Just a bit south of Colombia. So yeah, we're in pole forests, so we got PT, PT substrate for this little species of frog. And I mean, I think the first thing to talk about with this frog is really what it looks like. It's very brown. It's quite plain, which I, you know, I appreciate that. It's got quite chubby little back legs, very short, tiny front legs. But the main thing that stands out about it is its, <laughs> it's got face. It sticks for front legs. Are you kidding yeah, me? Yeah, it's front legs. <laughs> I feel like its rear legs are 10 to 20 times the size of its front legs. Yeah. It's super exaggerated. Yeah. And uh, its face... Its face, it just looks like... I mean, we talked about the purple frog, Nassibactrachus, quite recently. Yeah. And it does bear a striking similarity to that, this kind of conical face. Snout. Yeah. yeah imagine it just looks like a funnel. With some eyes stuck on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And interestingly, the authors of this paper obviously picked up on that funny sort of conical head. And they've called it Synapturanus danta. That's cool because, you know, I mean, I don't know, I sometimes rag on animals being named after animals and like things like leopard tortoise does kind of annoy me. But I like this one because Danta is the local name for the large mammal that is the Amazonian tapir, the Amazon tapir, Tapirus terrestris. Local people call this Danta. And during their expedition, when this frog was discovered, or at least described to science, obviously people knew about it, the local people were calling the frog Rana Danta because it reminded them of the head of the Amazon tapir, that conical head. So, I mean, it does does have a resemblance. <laughs> yeah, it does have a resemblance. So this kind of nickname of the Rana Danta, the tapir frog, has been forever eternalized in well pending some change but this frog has been named after its sort of similarity to the tapir which is a local large mammal and i really like tapirs they're probably one of my favorite mammals i like how cute the babies are they're all colorful <laughs> so i kind of i'm down with this name yeah absolutely i mean you didn't mention the uh, coloration of it and i think i said it was brown yeah but it's not just a, i mean it is the richest most chocolatey brown you've ever seen like <laughs> melted chocolate this is so it's so we rich. said exactly that about the last species of the bio week, yeah the but chocolate frog forget it forget that last one you thought that one was chocolatey you ain't got nothing on this one <laughs> you thought that one was charismatic wait till you see the charisma of this one holy smokes with his little beady rat eyes incredible yeah. incredible you know who it reminds me of it reminds me of station from bill and ted you know the little weird monster that they get, they team up with, and it's like station, and it's got a really long face. <laughs> uh, you're drawing a complete blank, and that's okay. It's quite a niche reference. Yeah, no, no, I, I do vaguely remember. Is that Bill and Ted? Yeah, Bill and Ted. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't remember the actual name of the movie, but yeah, one of the Bill and Ted films. They team up with this like monster alien called Station. That's got to be frog... the second one. That's got to be the second one. Yeah, I've not seen the most recent one. Same. 
I would like to. So yeah, what do we know about this frog? Synapteranus danta is only known from this one population and we're in the lower Putumayo River Basin in yeah. Peru. In the Amazonian peatlands in particular. Yeah. This muddy, very luscious forest. Yeah, it looks nice in the pictures. Yeah, it looks like a nightmare to walk through. Oh gosh, yeah, very deep, squelchy mud. Yeah. yeah it's sort of like lots and lots of small spindly trees and then it's extremely wet and mucky on the floor and there's sort of an understory of little plants that yeah everything seems to be on sort of stilts because yeah. of the, the peaty swamp up below and what are these frogs they found them doing some stuff well actually there's not really much known about what they do at all they live in the soil of these stunted pole forests they're seasonally saturated, so during various parts of the year, high water levels, there's like loads of pools everywhere. Obviously, the frogs like that, but then it gets dry when there's no rainfall. So I wouldn't be surprised looking at them if they go underground and sort of hide away from the dry times. But yeah, they sampled the area during a period of rising water levels at the beginning of the rainy season. So the frogs were probably quite excited about that. And um, yeah, they found that the males are actually caught in the drier areas within little chambers underground, underneath roots of trees. So the males are kind of hanging out in these like little tunnels that they've created underneath tree roots. Not actually in the water, just in the just sort of moist, away, nice soil. And, nice and safe in the soil. Nice and camouflaged, presumably. Yeah, I don't usually say this, but I bet that habitat absolutely stinks, mate. You know when you tread in... Peat woodland? Yeah. Yeah, it's probably got a very rich, rotty, composty smell. Yeah. yeah. But it's probably why they've got funny noses to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Science. <laughs> so yeah, there we go. Brand new species of little frog, Synapturanus danta, named for the Amazon tapir called danta by the local people. Did they give it a common name or did they leave that up to chance? I didn't see one. I don't think they did. Hmm. Well, there we go. The chocolate tapir frog. Yeah, that means it's up to us. Yeah. Yeah, they don't give it a name, a common name, but Rana Danta is what the people locally call it. I mean, Rana Danta is a really great name. It's got a ring to it. It really rolls off the tongue. Lovely. Yeah. Maybe we could just say that. Or the tapir faced chocolate swamp frog. (laughs) If you want a lot of words. Yeah, I think more words is better. Yeah. Make it as difficult to remember as possible. Cool, there we go, there we go. That's our new species of the bi-week. Welcome to science. Synapteranus danta. Yeah. Right, have you got any other business this week, Ben? Only a tiny bit, because I talked about it previously. Is we had a paper about um, tortoise home ranges, elongated tortoises home ranges. And that's now finally out formally in uh, the Herpological Journal. So... Congratulations. You know, for once was preprint, is now actually... Formally published, which is nice. And this is the results of Matt's Masters? Uh, Belly's Masters. Belly's Masters. Yeah. Oh, right on. Oh, big up. Congratulations, Belly. That's awesome. Fantastic. Yes. Love that. Yeah. So that's all tidied up now, which is very nice. Yeah. Good stuff. Great, great, great. Yeah. So everyone should go check that out. And um, It's not open access, unfortunately, but if you want to read it, just track down the preprint and you'll get the same content just in a slightly different format and for free. Cool. Yep, yep, yep. And I'm sure if anyone's that bothered, 
we can provide it. To oh you. yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Excellent, good stuff. I've got a couple of other bits just to say thank you to two new patrons. We got John Hamer and Philip Lietz. Big thanks to these guys dropping fat stacks on us. It's extremely generous and much appreciated. So thanks very much. Really big thanks to all our patrons. If you want to support the podcast, patreon.com slash herphighlights. But if you don't, don't, just don't. doesn't matter. Just don't. Listen for free. It's free science. Enjoy it. So I just also wanted to do one shout out. My friend Steve, a few weeks ago, I talked about the filming we did with the BBC. None of that would have happened if it weren't for my amazing friend Steve Elaine, who basically contacted the BBC about something else. They said to him, does anyone doing snake research in the UK? And he said, this guy Tom Major is. So if it weren't for Steve, none of that would have ever happened. And I didn't say thanks on the pod. So thanks, oh, Steve. Props. And uh, yeah, I'm sure he'll have some papers coming out about his grass snake PhD, which I know he's finishing off. So yeah, I'm sure we'll be uh-huh. able to cover some of those on the pod too. Excellent. More, yeah. more snake but, research. Yeah. Love it. Exactly. Yeah. And UK grass snakes. Cool stuff. Yeah. So um, look forward to that. But yeah, I think that's about it. If you want to get in touch with us, if you've got any corrections, herphighlights at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us through various social medias. I'm using Instagram now for the podcast. So follow us over on Instagram at herphighlights. And you can still get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter. Find us on there. Yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.